We're continuing in a series called Roll Call where we've reached week number five or, or function number five, which is the teacher. Now, this series has been based in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, where the Apostle Paul wrote these words. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the full knowledge of the Son of God become mature, thereby attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ." Today we're looking at the, the function of teacher, and the teacher is someone who was called to bring understanding, which addresses assent and knowledge, but also wisdom, which is the ability to transfer what is known into what is expressed and lived. Our model for this may surprise you, rather than going to people that you would expect, like Paul, uh, today we chose to go to the book of Acts in, in chapter 18, and we are going to look at the teacher Apollos. He had that teaching function within the church. And, and what is great about the example of Apollos is that there are definite strengths, but there are also definite improvements that need to be made. Now, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it to Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 18. We're going to read from verse 18 through verse 28. And what I would encourage you to do, right where you are, if you're in a family, hopefully you've got your Bible there, why don't one of you, right home right now, just read that portion of the text. If you're there at home or if you haven't got access to the Scriptures, if you're home alone and haven't got access to the Scriptures, just read along as the text is put on the screen, and then when we're ready, we'll all move on. So this chapter that you've just read addresses Apollos. And Apollos is a great example of someone in the early church who held that role, that function of teacher. Now the question that I want to address first is, what exactly made Apollos such a good teacher? And as we look at the text, we discovered that there were three traits that Apollos had that all good teachers have. The first one is this. 
Apollos was knowledgeable. If you look at the text, you will discover that it is said that Apollos was someone who had a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. That word thorough is the word dunatos. It means mighty or powerful. So his understanding of the Scriptures was said to be mighty and powerful. How did Apollos get so knowledgeable? Well, there are a couple of factors involved in this. The first factor is, of course, that he must have devoted himself to a study of the Scriptures, or good teachers do. If you have a teaching gift, it is imperative for you to devote yourself to a study of the Scriptures. What we also discover with Apollos, however, is that Apollos was someone who was born in and grew up in the city of Alexandria. Now, Alexandria was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. It was uh, developed or created or founded by Alexander the Great. Excavations reveal there to have been a university there, and the largest library in the Roman Empire was actually found in Alexandria. And so Apollos was someone who grew up in an environment of learning. The, the teacher Philo was also someone who was born in Alexandria and was alive at the point in time when Apollos lived and ministered. So we see the environment. Now, the other factor with this, of course, is Apollos' name, Apollos. We know that many Jewish males were named Apollos after Apollo. Apollo was that Greek god of mythology. He was someone who was the, uh, said to be the god of healing. He was someone who was said to have been the god of light, and he was also the god of truth. In other words, what we discover about Alexandria and Apollos and this environment is that Apollos is someone who devoted himself to the study of the Scriptures, but in that community there were a lot of people who held views that were not like his. Some of you may well have that teaching function, and you may well have developed knowledge in a particular field. It could be law. It could be business. It could also be, for example, medicine. And whenever you engage yourself in such a learned community, you will invariably encounter philosophies and principles and values that are very different to the values of your Christian faith. For example, if you are a medical doctor, our hearts go out to you right now as you, in the medical profession, you stand on the front lines of dealing with this virus, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you would recognize that in the medical field, there is often a difference of opinion when it comes to the value of human life. Very early when uh, last week Central made the decision to basically go to live stream, we did it because we recognize the value of life. We recognize and we stand up for the weak and the vulnerable, whether that is at the end of life or even at the very beginning of life. If you serve in the medical profession, no doubt you would have that biblical value of life beginning at conception, and yet even this week we read in our nation that the born alive bill was voted against as people have a very different value. Apollos grew up in a community that was well-educated, that was intellectual, and he counted that intellectual uh, 
knowledge that was there, often that ran counter to the Scriptures by fully engaging in the Word of God. If you are a teacher, someone with a teaching function, I encourage you to have that thorough, dynamic, mighty knowledge of the Scriptures that will help you do God's will, God's way in an environment that is not often favorable to the things of God. Apollos was knowledgeable. Second, he was skillful. He was skillful. We discover here that he is a learned man, a learned man. The word learned here is the word logios. It occurs only this time in the entire scriptures. It's drawn from the word logos, meaning reason or speech. The word learned has two components to it. The first is he was skilled in history. That's the idea here. There's a historical component to it. Apollos was skilled. Why? Because he was able to look at what was happening in the world, look at what was happening in the reason, in, in, the, in, the, in his environment of the day, and basically connect God's word to people's lives. He was skilled in history. Secondly, he was also skilled in oratory. He was eloquent of speech. This is one reason why in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes of segments, of sections, of kind of splinters in the Corinthian church. He says, some follow Paul, some say, I follow Peter, and some even say, I follow Apollos. Apollos was skilled he was skilled because he took time to study history. He was skilled because he took time to improve on his delivery. Apollos was knowledgeable and he was skilled. All good teachers are. But thirdly, Apollos was also passionate. The text tells us that he spoke with great fervor. That is literally with the passion of the Spirit, with the fervor of the Spirit. The very same phrase is used by Paul in Romans chapter 12 and verse 11 to speak of all believers. This is what Paul writes, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving others. The question we ask then, is this passion something that was unique to Apollos? Or is it something that is given to every teacher? I believe that this is a trait of every good teacher, passionate. In Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 14, God says to Jeremiah, I will make my words in your mouth a fire. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that people speak with the, the, all the energy and the passion and the, the kind of conviction and they leave any, everything out there. What it means is that the Word of God has gone from the brain and actually dropped down into the heart and it has been expressed and experienced throughout life so that there is an energy, there is a dynamism that is expressed through someone who has internalized God's Word. All good teachers do this. They take the word that is knowledge and they seek to express it out through their life, through their hands and their feet. So if you are someone who has that teaching function, these are three things that you should do. You should improve your knowledge. You should develop your skills and you should ensure that what you know to be true in your head is actually being expressed through your life because that type of passion brings people alive. So that's what made Apollos 
a good teacher. But what I love about this chapter is that Apollos isn't the finished article. From verses 25 through 27, we discover that Priscilla and Aquila are the teachers in the, in the New Testament church. Heard Apollos speak and recognized that there was something not quite right. He wasn't the finished article. And what I love about Apollos in this section of the text is he's actually teachable. All good teachers remain teachable. Now, the significance of this, of course, is this was a very influential man. He was so influential that some people preferred him to Peter and Paul, and yet he remained teachable. Look at your Bibles again at Acts 18 from verse 25 through 27. This is what we read. Uh, this is about Apollos. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. Hold on to that. He talked about Jesus accurately, though he only knew of the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue with Priscilla and Aquila, uh, heard him, and they invited him to their home, and they explained the way of God to him more adequately. And then we read, after this, he went off and he preached powerfully and loads of people believed through him. There's a couple of words in here that I just love. As you look at this, there's firstly the word accurately. He talked about Jesus accurately. So what he was presenting about the matters of the faith were accurate. And yet, even though he was accurate about Jesus, he was inadequate about something else. He was accurate, but he was inadequate. And this accuracy meant that even though there was something inadequate about his message, Priscilla and Aquila didn't feel the need to pull him out of ministry. They just took him to their home, sat him down, and quietly explained to him the words and the methods of the faith more adequately. Now, what's interesting is the word accurate and adequate are the exact same words. He was accurate, but there was an inadequacy. Now, as we kind of make our way through this, this challenging season that we're going through, I think that there's something we can learn from this. Commentators look at this, this idea that Apollos was accurate but inadequate, and they ask themselves, what was the problem? The commentators have so much fun with this, and I've not got time to go into it. But what we do know is that the issue stems from his understanding of baptism. Specifically, the text tells us that Apollos only knew of John's baptism. So what was Apollos' problem then? Well, it's John's baptism. What was John's baptism? John's baptism was a baptism of preparation for the one who would come. It's a baptism of repentance and preparation for the one who was to come. And then the one who was to come, Jesus, came and offered salvation. And so John's baptism morphed into Christian baptism in the early church, which was not a baptism in preparation for the one who had come to save us from sin, but was actually an acknowledgement of the one who saved us from sin and a desire to participate in the life of Christ for the rest of their life. So Apollos' problem here is not so much the theory, his problem is the practice. 
He is calling people to prepare, but he is not necessarily calling people to participate in. So Aquila and Priscilla, they take him to one side and they say, hey, uh, Apollos, that thing that you're preparing people for, they can now participate in. Call people to participate. And church, I think this is one of the, the big areas where we in the evangelical church need to broaden our understanding of the function of teaching, but also the responsibility of those who've heard biblical teaching. See, all too often, even in the evangelical church, teaching addresses the mind, it addresses the head, it addresses knowledge. When in reality, in the biblical worldview, biblical teaching addresses the entire person. A biblical teacher points out truth, truth that starts often in the mind, but then needs to drop into the heart and be expressed through life. We call people to move from knowledge to participating, living out that knowledge. Think about it like this. How many of you grew up in church and from the time when you were young, you heard people say, God loves you. God loves you. Never forget that God loves you. Now, until the moment where you made that decision to personally respond to the love of God that had been demonstrated to you through Christ Jesus, that, that statement, God loves you, resided in your brain. It was there, you knew it. But in that moment where you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that knowledge moved from data to become a part of your life story. All of a sudden, your entire life is defined by an experience of a God who is love. Or for some of us, we may well know that God provides. And we can point to stories where we lacked and something happened where the knowledge of God's provision that is in our head suddenly became a part of our story. Or, or what about those of us out there who are rebuilding our lives from brokenness, maybe from guilt and shame, from acts that we've done or things that have happened that made us feel guilty and we've walked around in guilt and shame. And we may well have heard over and over again about a God who gives us mercy and grace. But until we allowed that grace and mercy to move from our head and to our, into our hearts, we forever, we continually walked in shame and guilt. See, there's one thing to know something. There's quite another thing for us to live out, to participate in that which we know to be true. And you see, what the Bible tells us is Bible knowledge without biblical experience is inadequate. Apollos' deficiency wasn't in knowledge, it was in the rest of the story. Bible knowledge without biblical experience is inadequate. We began this, uh, today's service with uh, Psalm 23. Knowing Psalm 23, we could say, is very different from knowing the shepherd. But think about Psalm 23, just for a moment. The Lord is my shepherd, David says, I shall not want, I lack nothing. 
That psalm begins with that statement and moves to the point where David says he will dwell in the house of God forever. He truly would lack nothing. But I want to ask you this question. What is the path through which David got to experience lacking nothing? What is the story narrated in that psalm? We kind of could put it like this, that at the beginning of the psalm, David is on a journey. He knows in his head that God is his shepherd. He's kind of in one place, and, and the house of the Lord that he longs for is over there somewhere, and all too often, in the modern church, in the Western church, we think that the way to get to that point of blessing is ultimately always up and to the right, numbers always up and to the right, experience always up and to the right. God says he loves me and I'll know that by things always going well. God said he'll provide for me by me never having a lack for anything. God says he he shows me grace and mercy and I'll get that without ever having to live with the shame, the guilt and the regret. Always up and to the right. But what's interesting in this psalm is that things don't go up and to the right. In fact, David begins by saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then the next steps he follows, actually God leads him through the valley of the shadow of death. It is there in the turmoil that what David knows to be true about God in his head is actually going to be lived out through his life. And friends, it is not because everything went well for David that he experienced God to be the good shepherd. It is because he was led through the valley of the shadow. I realize that's where many of us are being led right now. I spoke to a company owner who this week is facing the reality that a number of his hourly employees are probably gonna need to be laid off. These people are going to walk through the valley and they've heard that God provides. And friends, what we are going to discover is is that it is precisely through this valley that we will experience God's goodness and God's grace. What we discover in the Christian faith is that the way up, the way towards that blessing that we long for, often involves us taking a step down. That the way through is often the way to. The way through, suffering, Insecurity, challenge, brokenness, the way through it leads us to a God who's been walking with us every step of the way. And we know this with Jesus too, don't we? With Jesus, we know that the incarnation, taking on flesh, actually led to the crucifixion before it led to the resurrection and the ascension. Even for Jesus, the way up was actually down. I believe that what God is going to do in his church and in his people in this season is that he is going to teach us things we know to be true in our head by giving us the opportunity to walk through valleys where God will prove himself to be exactly what we need him to be. Friends, I don't know what you're going through right now but I do know this, God is with you, God is for you, and God will never leave you, and he will never forsake you.